0: Listen, before we start the show today, a quick note. Thanks to you, the Ongoing History of New Music podcast has been racing up the podcast charts, and we've been receiving a bunch of email and direct messages from fans of the show that you wanted to hear more episodes. Okay, done. We've heard you, and we're happy to do just that. So we're ramping things up around here. You will now get an additional Ongoing History of New Music podcast every week all summer long. So that's two shows for the price of, well, none. So, get it. I mean, show is free. Okay, wait. Also, enjoy this week's episode. Here we go. In the beginning, and I'm talking about, uh, about 1955, it was easy to categorize popular music. There was rock, pop, country, and R&B. Nice and simple. Pretty much all mainstream music that you heard could be dumped into one of those four buckets. But even back then, you could get more granular, You could slice certain genres into thinner slices to include Big Band, Dixieland, Ska, and Hillbilly. Uh, And jazz. Gospel. Broadway show music. And I guess we can't leave out classical, can we? Anyway, as rock and roll grew, it fragmented and separated and stratified with each passing year. And before long, it wasn't enough to say that you were in a rock band, you had to specify what kind of rock band you were in. In 2014, a guy named Glenn MacDonald created a project called Every Noise at Once. And he was able to identify 1,264 microgenres of popular music. And new microgenres are being invented every single day. I mean, have you ever heard of Black Gaze or Deep Filth Step or Squee? No idea what squeeze is. Anyway, it exists. Trust me. Some of these genres rise and fall pretty quickly. They're of the moment and soon sound completely outdated. Others, though, have staying power. They can be with us for decades. Why is that? Well, because they just kind of work, you know? And one genre that's been working very well for over half a century is called power pop. This is its story. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross. Uh, Where was I? Oh, right. Uh, Rock music can be sliced and diced into a variety of very specific sound, scenes, and subgenres. This time, I'd like to take you through the history of power pop. A hooky, spiky, sometimes angular sounding, and always fun sort of rock and roll, consisting of short, sharp songs using the same basic lineup. Guitars, bass, drums, and vocals. Power pop is a timeless sort of rock. It's a style that never seems to sound dated. It's very hard to tell if any given power pop song was recorded in 1972 or 2012. And I think you'll see what I mean in a moment. The best way to get all this started is to play us some power pop, just so we have a reference point. And one of the best places to start is with Sloan. There's Sloan and Money City Maniacs, a power pop style recorded in 1998. But uh, unless you knew that, it was possible that it might have been written and recorded any time in the last 40 years. That's how enduring power pop is. Let's go back to the beginning. And like with so much of today's rock, we end up back at The Beatles. They were ground zero for this sort of sound as far back as 1963 with their very first singles, and through songs like Help, and Ticket to Ride, and Paperback Writer. After the Beatles all my came all the rest of the British Invasion bands, especially the Kinks and the Who. In fact we can probably credit Pete Townsend as the person who first used the term power pop to describe a certain style of rock. From the British, we can move to the Americans, like the Beach Boys and the Birds, two bands that are still revered by classic rock and pop fans. But we also have to give props to the so-called bubblegum sound of the 1960s and early 1970s. In fact, you could make a very solid argument for power pop being nothing more than charged up old school top 40 music, big hooks, sing-along choruses, and stories of cars and girls and parties mated with chunky guitars and drums. Power pop, as we know it, began taking shape in the early 1970s, and I'd start with a group from Cleveland called the Raspberries. They existed for five years, 1970 to 1975, and during that period they released some killer songs with melodies that sort of ran parallel with the bubblegummy pop side of British glam rock. What made them different is that you could also hear elements of the classic American garage band sound. What the Raspberries did foreshadowed some of the new wave music that would come later in the decade. Now, let me show you what I mean. And notice that outside of a few production tweaks, a song like this would not sound out of place today If it were released by some hot new indie band. But this is from 1972. These are the Raspberries and Go All The Way. the raspberries and go all the way their second ever single which appeared on their 1972 self-titled debut album the singer in the band was eric Carmen, a guy who would later have a massive top 40 hit called all by myself in 1975 very very sappy song but it was hugely successful and then celine dion also covered it and made eric several tanker ships full of money At about the same time the Raspberries were starting to have hits, Big Star was trying to get out of Memphis. Their frontman was Alex Chilton, who, as a 16-year-old kid, was the lead singer for the Box Tops on their summer of 67 smash single, The Letter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage... All the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com slash specialoffer. All lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special y- Yeah, yeah, I know. That, that's a sixteen-year-old singing. After the box tops broke up, Chilton formed Big Star. They wanted to follow in the footsteps of the Beatles and the Kinks, but they also admired the melodies of the Beach Boys. Unfortunately for Big Star, they couldn't manage any hit singles and never sold many records. Blame a bad record deal for most of that. However, they were major critical darlings and had fans amongst other musicians. But since nothing was really working from the commercial side of things, they broke up after three years. Big Star remained an undiscovered cult favorite for a couple of decades, but then they were discovered by a number of 90s-era alt-rock bands who realized that whatever Big Star was doing back in 1971, they were way, way ahead of their time. Let me show you what I mean. This is from Big Star's second record, which was called Radio City. Now, try to imagine how radical this sound might have been back then, and then ask yourself, Could this song work in today's alt rock world? Yeah, probably. From 1974, that's Big Star with a power pop classic called September Girls. Like I said, they were a major critical success but a major commercial flop. The band would have to wait 20 years before people really started to appreciate what they accomplished. Alright, you with me so far in this power pop thing? Here's where we need to talk about Cheap Trick. This is a band that's cited as an influence by bands ranging from the Smashing Pumpkins to the Foo Fighters. Very, very important to our story. Cheap Trick was formed in 1973 in Rockford, Illinois, a place just west of Chicago. Like the Raspberries, they were into songs with big hooks. But thanks to guitarist Rick Nielsen, their sound was more muscular. It was louder and slightly more aggressive. Not much, but just enough. They played everywhere at first. Clubs, pubs, even bowling alleys. It wasn't until their second album and a change of producers that their rock sound turned slightly more pop. And what I mean by that is that they kept the guitars, but they went for simpler melodies, bigger hooks. Think back to the era of the Beatles career that we talked about earlier. By their third album, which came out in 1978, Cheap Trick had a pretty polished sound and a hit single. It was rock, but it definitely had a lot of pop in it. Cheap Trick and Surrender from 1978. And like I said earlier, that's apparently the first song to ever feature a 12-string bass guitar. Normally, you only need four. But Tom Peterson felt that he needed three times as many for that song, for whatever reason. Surrender is from Heaven Tonight, a 1978 record that made Cheap Trick huge in Japan. Later that year, they flew over for a quick tour and the resulting record, Cheap Trick at Budokan, made the massive stars on both sides of the Pacific. Cheap Trick pushed the power pop ball just far enough down the field so that when New Wave hit, there were plenty of bands ready to pick up that ball. Groups who were really into spiky, angular-sounding songs that were fun to sing along and dance to. For a while, the biggest of all those New Wave power pop bands was the Knack. Now, the Knack was born in Detroit with singer Doug Figer. You may have heard of his brother, a lawyer named Jeffrey Figer, who later represented Dr. Jack Kevorkian in all those cases of assisted suicide. At first, Doug and his band were total failures. All their demos had been rejected by all the record companies they approached. But then guitarist Burton Aver showed Doug both a guitar riff and a drum part that he had been working on. Sounded cool, but nobody really knew what to do with it. It was shortly after that, though, that Doug ran into a 17-year-old girl named Sharona Alperin. It was love at first sight, and he was so crazy about her that he wanted to write songs about her. The first song came together in about 15 minutes. Now, Burton wasn't convinced. It's like, dude, come on, you want us to play songs that you wrote about your young girlfriend? That's, that's really lame. No, 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 said Doug. This will work. Remember that guitar riff and drum groove you showed me? It all goes together perfectly with what I wrote. Watch. And he was right. That is a true power pop classic, The Knack and My Sharona from 1979. That was a number one hit single for six weeks, and for a time, The Knack's debut record, which hit number one in both Canada and the U.S., was the fastest-selling album Capitol Records released since Meet the Beatles in 1964, and they recorded this thing for just $18,000. By the way, the real Sharona... She's now a real estate agent in California. If you want to see what she's up to today, just go to www.mysharona.com. Sadly, Doug Figer died of brain and lung cancer in 2010. The Knack sat at this nexus of rock, pop, and this new thing called New Wave. And this is where Power Pop began its integration into the world of alternative rock. New Wavers loved the idea of Power Pop and sucked it in as much as they possibly could. It wasn't punk, But you could tell by listening to the new wave brand of power pop that punk had definitely happened. We had the Cars, the Shoes, the Records, the Buzzcocks, Elvis Costello, and Joe Jackson. They brought a little punk into the mix. We can probably include the Jam, the Smiths, XTC, Squeeze, and the Vapors. There were lesser known bands with names like the Rubenus and the Sponge Tones and the Quick and Great Buildings. Even some aspects of what Blondie was doing could be classified as power pop. Think about songs like One Way or Another. And, of course, we can't forget the Ramones in all this. One of the British godfathers of this sound was Nick Lowe, a guy who came out of the British pub rock scene of the early 70s and who not only had some hit singles of his own, but also had a number of his tracks turned into hits by other artists like Elvis Costello and Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, by the way, was Nick's father-in-law. If you ask Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys who his favorite songwriter of all time is, he will tell you that one of them has got to be Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe with Cruel To Be Kind from the summer of 1979. The album was called Labor of Lust, and that became a gold record in Canada. Six months after Nick Lowe and The Knack were having hits with their brand of power pop, came these four guys from Detroit, all dressed in red leather. At first, the Romantics considered themselves more punk rock than New Wave. But when the music came out, it was all very power poppy. One of their very first songs remains their biggest. In fact, this is an all-time classic, but not at first. When it was first released, it didn't even make the top 40 in the U.S. It wasn't until a video started getting play on this new thing called MTV a year later that it began to have any real impact. It has since made the band gigantic gobs of money from licensing arrangements, with everything from the Los Angeles Dodgers to Barbie dolls to SeaWorld to pizza joints to... God knows what else. And let's not even talk about the number of movies and TV shows that have featured this particular song. Oh, what oh, I hear it's true. That's what I like about you. what I like about you. The Romantics with What I Like About You, first released in January of 1980 setting things up for another decade of power pop. If you heard that song for the first time today, would you guess that it's that old? Probably not. That's the enduring appeal of the power pop sound. We'll get moving through the 80s, 90s, and up to today in just a sec. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor. Tell a friend about it. Or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you'd do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at allencross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear. Or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. alan and allencross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? We are exploring the history of power pop, a specific type of sound that continues to influence all kinds of today's artists, ranging from the Arctic Monkeys to the Foo Fighters to the new pornographers. We're now at the beginning of the 1980s, a time when things got a little confused. There was a tendency to categorize all short, sharp rock songs as power pop. And if they were power pop, then they were new wave, right? Right? Well, not really, but it does explain why Tom Petty and Rick Springfield and Greg Kinn were once thrown into the early mix of alternative or new wave artists. But by the time we got to the middle of the decade, big guitar sounds with big hooks that just happened to have pop melodies were coming back into vogue, thanks to groups like R.E.M. Not all their stuff could be considered power pop, but there were elements in there. Same thing with the Smithereens, a band from New Jersey, who was amongst the most aggressive-sounding power-pop bands. Dial down the guitars just a bit, and what they leave behind was more or less straight-ahead pop. The Pixies have plenty of power-pop in their DNA, but it's well-hidden under all those soft, loud, soft, loud guitars. Dinosaur Jr. might fit the bill with some songs. And then there was Chicago's Material Issue, who released a fine album called International Pop Overthrow, a power pop title if there ever was one. I love these guys. But they were derailed by the sudden suicide of singer Jim Ellison. However, their spirit lives on. Chicago hosts an annual festival called International Pop Overthrow that's been going on since 1997, and it features bands in the whole power pop vein. And if you're familiar with the Tragically Hip song, Escape is at Hand for the Travelin' Man, that's from their Phantom Power album, you might know that the song was inspired by Jim Ellison of Material Issue. This is from that 1991 Material Issue album. It's called Valerie Loves Me. Material Issue and Valerie Loves Me. And yes, there really was a girl named Valerie. Again, notice the timeless construction of the power pop song. Compare that to Kryptonite from Three Doors Down from 2000, or maybe a little Franz Ferdinand from today. As alt-rock was on the upswing in the 1990s, most people had their eye on grunge. But what was grunge other than pop songs with the guitars tuned way low and then turned way up? but there were other acts during that era that even went more Beatlesque with their approach. Now, this isn't to say that they sounded like the Beatles, but you could tell that they were paying close attention to everything that came before Sgt. Pepper. An example is Matthew Sweet, a dude originally from Nebraska, who ended up in Athens, Georgia, in a band with Michael Stipe's sister. It took a while for Matthew's career to gain traction, but it finally hit its stride with his third album, Girlfriend, in 1991. The title track was just the song Matthew had been looking for. Don't you need to get back in me on to a good friend. Oh, honey, believe me. Don't you like to call that a friend? fantastic power pop from 1991, Matthew Sweet and Girlfriend. Like I said earlier, the alt-rock sound of the 90s was a breeding ground for bands who wanted to explore this sound. I want to highlight one last power pop band, and that's Weezer. They specialize in short, quirky pop songs, often with sharp guitars and pointed lyrics mixed with the occasional bit of satire. If that doesn't fit the bill, I don't know what does. Their influences include the Beatles, the Ramones, Cheap Trick, the Knack, the Cars, the Pixies. In short, just about every single band that we've mentioned so far. In fact... You might want to argue that these guys are the leading power pop band in the world today. Weezer from the Red Album of 2008 and Pork and Beans. So, Who are today's power pop bands? Besides Weezer, I mean. Well, we have Jimmy Eat World, OK Go, All American Rejects, Simple Plan, Maybe Fallout Boy. All of these groups are part of a tradition that goes back to at least 1963. Isn't it amazing that a particular kind of sound can have that much of a lifespan? Thanks for hanging out again this week. And remember, I'm always interested in hearing from you about just about anything. Comments, criticisms, questions, critiques, topic suggestions for upcoming programs, all sorts of stuff. You can reach me at alan at alancross.ca. There's also a website for all of this. Actually, there's a couple. Ongoinghistory.com is one. There's mine at ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated obsessively every single day. There's also a free newsletter that goes along with that site. It comes out every weekday, and you will never, ever get any spam from me. You really should sign up. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.